Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. Today, we are closing our series on loving God. This has been a spiritual formation type of series where we are talking about what it actually means to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it comes from this text in Mark 12, where Jesus is asked by a lawyer or a scribe, um, what is the greatest commandment? And this is Jesus' answer. He says, one of, uh, whoa, we got the whole thing there. Of all the commandments, which is the most important? And Jesus says, the most important one, he answered, is, hear, O Israel, the Lord God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, to love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. So we've gone through the heart, which is where the will and affections lie. We've gone through the soul, which is our very person. It's who we are and and what our life is about. And then we've talked about our mind, which is where our convictions lie and what we actually believe. And today, we're going to talk about strength. And the word strength is what leads us into the second part of this commandment, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. It's how we love our neighbors as ourselves. So I want to point out two things about this passage. One is neighbor. There's all, I mean, so much ink has been spilled about who exactly our neighbor is. Our neighbor is basically everyone. It could be the person living in your house. It could be your actual next door neighbor, but it's everyone around you, essentially. For our purposes here, that's what we have in mind. And it doesn't necessarily mean a neighbor who believes the same as you. In fact, a lot of times it's actually the opposite of that. It's the person who doesn't believe the same way as you, who lives totally differently than you. So there's no specification as to which neighbors you're allowed to love and which ones you're not allowed to love. Like, it's the whole thing. Are you with me? Okay, so um, the word strength, what comes to mind when you hear the word strength? Let me hear just a couple of responses. I mean, we got to wake up. We're moving fast today. I got a lot to say. (laughs) What comes to mind when you hear the word strength? Discipline, Discipline, power, self-reliance, action. Okay, awesome. I'm going to show a video on the word strength because in five minutes they sum up, which would take me 20 minutes of blabbing. So let's roll the video. (laughs) For thousands of years, every morning and evening, Jewish people have prayed these well-known words as a way of expressing their devotion to God. They're called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. We're going to look at the last word, strength. The Hebrew word is ma'od, and it occurs some 300 times in the scriptures, and it doesn't actually mean strength. There is a perfectly good word for strength in Hebrew, and ma'od is not it. In fact, the Shema is one of the only places in the whole Bible where ma'od is translated as strength. So, what's up with that? 
The most common meaning of ma'od is very or much. It's what grammar nerds call an adverb, a word that comes alongside other words to augment their meaning. For example, in Genesis chapter 1, God looks at the world that he's made and six times he calls it good, but then the climactic seventh time he says it is ma'od good, that is, very good. Later in Genesis, in the story of Noah, the flood waters keep rising and they become ma'od powerful or extremely powerful over the land. In the story of Cain and Abel, Cain wasn't just angry at his brother, he was ma'od angry. Or when Saul became the king of Israel, he was ma'od happy. So you can see why ma'od occurs hundreds of times in the Bible. It's a really common Hebrew word that intensifies the meaning of other words. Very this or really that. However, biblical authors could use ma'od in ways that are unique. Like when they want to increase a word's force to total capacity, they'll say ma'od twice. So Jacob became ma'od, ma'od wealthy with flocks and camels and donkeys and servants. Or the Israelite spies went to investigate the promised land and they say, the land we pass through is ma'od, ma'od good. So it's pretty clear, ma'od doesn't mean strength in terms of muscle power, but rather very or much. So let's come back to the Shema, where people are called to love God with all of their heart, that is their will and affections, and with all of their soul, that is their whole life and physical being, and with all of their ma'od, that is with all of their muchness. And while that sounds kind of funny, you also kind of get it. If ma'od can intensify any word's meaning to total capacity, then this final thing that you use to love God isn't a thing at all. It's actually everything. Loving God with your ma'od means devoting every possibility, opportunity, and capacity that you have to honoring God and loving your neighbor as yourself. It's the most wide and expansive word in the Shema. Ma'od can refer to almost anything. Which raises one last and really fascinating point. Because this word was capable of many nuances of meaning, ancient Jewish communities interpreted ma'od in the Shema in different ways. So the ancient Jewish scholars who translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek, when they came to ma'od in the Shema, they translated it with the Greek word dunamis, that is power or strength. This is the interpretation adopted by most modern translations. But if you look at the ancient Aramaic translations of the Hebrew Bible, you'll discover that these scholars interpreted ma'od to mean wealth. Money is a concrete thing that opens up all kinds of opportunities to love God by giving away resources. And when Jesus was asked about the most important command in scripture, he quoted the Shema. And he used two words to unpack the meaning of ma'od. He said, love God with all of your mind and with all of your power. Both are human capacities that can be used to love God in an infinite number of ways. So which of these interpretations of ma'od is right? Does it mean strength or wealth or mind? That's the wrong question. The word ma'od doesn't limit the number of ways you can show love for God, just the opposite. The point is that everything in a person's life, every moment and every opportunity, every ability and capacity offers a chance to love and honor the one who made you. It's a call to love God with all of your muchness. And that's the meaning of strength in the Shema. So good. So muchness, like that is such a great word that captures what we mean when we talk about strength. Because our strength is actually how we embody the first three things that we talked about. It's how we embody our heart, our soul, and our mind. It's what comes out of our body and through our, the way that we live our lives, the way we show up in the world, that or originates in our heart, soul, and our mind. 
So to love God with all of our muchness, with everything in our lives, involves every moment, every opportunity, every ability, every capacity. It offers us the chance to tell the story of God and the truth about himself to other people. It's how we love others. So um, it doesn't, the, the thing that's really important is that it doesn't matter how much of it you have, right? In our culture, especially this culture, we find our identity in how strong we are, how capable we are, how much we produce, how excellent we are at the thing that we, we do. It's about more, 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 and capacity. But what God is saying is that, no, it's your capacity to love with what you have been given. The other thing that's really important is we take things like this, like the Shema. When the Shema was introduced to me, and especially the Deuteronomy version, it was, it was introduced to me as like a way that we would lead our family. And it was very individualistic, the way that it was presented to me. So, so you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it would say like, in Deuteronomy it says, keep these commandments in your heart and talk about them when you wake up, when you walk, as you go along. And it still felt like it was about me and my family. But what, what's really important is that the beginning of this, it says, hear, O Israel. He's talking to a whole entire community, a whole nation. All of you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so that translates right into when Jesus says it, he's talking to a community of followers and would-be followers that are living in the, um, the Roman Empire. And it, and it says to pass them on to your children and your children's children. So it speaks to a whole generation. So that word, you, is, it's really interesting because we think about it as just ourselves, but what God is saying and what Jesus is saying is that our muchness is all of us together. My muchness is not enough. I need my muchness and your muchness, and we all need our muchness to live our muchness for the glory of God. Does that make sense? Yeah? <laughs> okay. What? It's a lot of muchness. I'm not, I just got started. <laughs> okay. So Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what is God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but think of yourself with sober judgment and in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. For just as, the, as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, though many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy according to your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. 
So you see how like we've each been given something, each body has been given something, but together they form one body, right? And this is what I believe, this is what it's saying. So here's the thing, our bodies and how our bodies function and, and how our bodies, though many, form one body, the body of Christ, our bodies are actually what hold our muchness. And because the human body is what God has decided upon in creation to help all of creation tell the truth about himself to the world, the unfortunate thing is many of us were taught, intentionally or unintentionally, that this world, world this earth, and these bodies don't matter. Or worse, that they're evil, shameful, bad, waiting to be destroyed, and something that we need to escape from, right? Or something that we have to be freed from. And history has spoken about movements time and time again that either think that the body means nothing and doesn't matter at all, and, um, or, or that what we achieve is what matters and what counts, and that the body and what we do with it doesn't really matter right? That our bodies are our worst enemy, and we don't, and we have everything, everything that we do, we, we have to do to flee the things that the body enjoys, right? But that's not what the scriptures are teaching us. So I, I know that the body is not all that the word strength and meod and muchness is encapsulated in. I know that there's so much more to that word, but I really want to talk about what our bodies have to do with this, because it says it a lot in scripture, but we tend to talk about it the least, what the implications of what our bodies are like and what they do. In the very beginning of Genesis, in Genesis 1:26, it tells us that this creator God who speaks forth creation and sees that it's good, those are bodily functions, right? He speaks, he sees, and he, and he says that it's good. He walked in the cool of the day and he blessed his creation. He said, then God said, let us make humans in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over everything creeping, every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So the human story begins in a garden with creation and with a body, with an embodied person or persons, right? And then God comes down to earth to be with his people in the form of a body. He comes as a man. And Jesus is declaring the kingdom of God with bodily things, right? The blind will see, the lame will walk, the deaf will hear. And he goes all around in his ministry and he feeds people. He touches people. He he heals people. He's doing things with his body and helping other bodies be participants in this kingdom of God. And then when God's incarnate body died, he was buried in a tomb like all bodies are, but that body rose on the third day, proclaiming new life, and that these bodies have eternal significance. So what if Instead of seeing our bodies as something that doesn't matter or something that we need to cover, hide, be ashamed of, what if we saw our bodies, no matter what they look like, how big or small, how able or disabled or spirited or dispirited they are, what if we saw our bodies as a gift of grace? What if we saw our bodies, as Romans 12 says, as the thing that God has given us to offer as a living sacrifice, as our spiritual act of worship? These human bodies 
house our hearts, our souls, our mind, and they put out our strength into the world. They are what God has given us to testify of his muchness, telling the truth of his goodness and what he's like. So let me ask you this. Has anybody ever been told that your body is a temple of God? How does that make you feel? Come on. I'm going to need a lot of feedback today, guys. I spent a week at summer camp with middle school girls, and I am tired, so I need you to be in this with me. (laughs) So how do you feel, or how have you felt when you've been told that your body is a temple of God? There is no wrong answer. Inadequate? Overwhelmed? Uncomfortable? Guilty. Guilty. Mm -hmm. Responsibility? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I asked people at camp this week, because there's nothing like prepping for a message when you're at camp. I asked people at camp this week, like, what, did you th- what do you think of when you think your body is a temple of God? And like, I heard words like abstinence, shame, modesty, purity culture, like all that stuff. So depending on what generation you're in, you're going to have maybe a different answer. And so what this co- where this comes from, I want to show you where this comes from, because the way that we feel about it, all of the things that we said, how we feel about it is not what was intended when it was spoken. There are three places in Scripture where Paul talks about the body being a temple. First one is in 1 Corinthians 3.16, and I'm not going like, to go deep into all of these. You can like, take notes or capture it on the screen. 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? The second one is 1 Corinthians, or Ephesians 2.22, and in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The third one is later in Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, a flat reading of these in our cultural context and the way that many of us were introduced to this has led us to believe that these are very individualistic ideas, right? And this is how many of us were were taught this. But grammatically speaking, our English language doesn't capture the essence of this from this original language. We don't have a grammatically correct way to capture the yous in this passage. They're meant to be plural, not singular. So grammatically speaking, the South has interpreted this scripture better than anybody because what it means is all y'all's body is the temple of Christ. It's not your body, it's not my body, it's not me as an individual. Yes, I'm to steward what God has given me and to steward it well and to steward it with humility, but that's not what it's saying. What it's saying is all y'all's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. All y'all's body is where the Spirit of God dwells. And he's using temple language, not writing to one person again, but writing to multiple churches in Ephesus and Corinth that were living in a culture highly influenced by Greek thought and philosophy. So in that culture, um, the human body in its most perfect form and function is what was worshipped. That's why we have all these beautiful naked statues in museums, right? 
the human body in all of its perfect form and function was worshiped. Things like beauty and strength and fitness and sexuality, these were things that were idolized in that culture. And what Paul is doing is he's turning all of that upside down in their culture and saying, that's not what you should worship. You worship the living God who actually lives in this temple that you carry. Right? Make sense? Okay. So what he does in all of these scriptures is he's telling them that not just your body, but all of your bodies together are the temple of God. The way you practice and honor and kindness and love and reverence as we bring our bodies to each other in places of worship, in places of work, in places of family, in, in, in places of community. All of these things are the temple of God. And Paul is using his prophetic voice to speak to where God's spirit dwells and also to the unity of the, in the spirit and the bonds of peace that these people were to carry together as one body, one body and their collective fidelity to Jesus is to be expressed in this way. Are you with me? So what if all y'all's body is a temple is a gift of grace meant to be the place where God's spirit dwells and where, where God uses our bodies to tell the truth about who he is and what he's like to the world around us, to our neighbors. What if all y'all's body is a temple of God meant that our bodies are actually our allies and not our enemies? What if your body is a temple of God meant that the first thing God gave us to bring his likeness and his muchness to all of the earth was our bodies? What if your body is a temple of God meant that your body was made to worship with all the muchness within you? not just in this place where we get together and sing, but with every single part of your life. Because loving God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself means that you worship. That word love, that adoration, that worship is putting your love and adoration and affection for Christ above everything. What if we looked at our bodies being a temple of God as the very thing that is meant to stir our affection for Christ? David Taylor, who is a theologian and a professor at Fuller, says this, Our bodies are not merely neutral spectators or a problem to be escaped at worship. There's nothing neutral about the bodies we bring to worship. All of us bring bodies to one another today. We bring bodies to worship together that carry something with them. We bring bodies that fear rejection, failure, or being out of control. We bring bodies that are burdened by sickness, disability, and self-hatred. We bring disfigured bodies and bodies that are dispirited. We bring bodies that are scarred of touch and bodies that are starved of touch. And because we live in this in-between space where the kingdom of God has come and it's not yet and it's coming all at the same time, we bring these broken ways of relating to our own bodies and broken ways of how our bodies relate to others. And all of this is found in these common places that we are together, these common places of worship and these common places that we dwell together. But one of the greatest gifts 
that God gives us is our bodies and the way that he uses our bodies to speak to us and to speak to the world. Our bodies tell us how we're doing. They tell us when we need space. They tell us what we need to hear God. They tell us when we're tired. They tell us where we need to find the rest in God. They tell us they reveal our fear. They reveal our discomfort. We all carry this all in our bodies. So what if we looked at our bodies as a gift of grace where God's spirit dwells? I'm gonna ask Kevin to come up and we're gonna do a Q&A and then we're gonna do a Q and R, sorry, Q and R, question and response, because we do not have all the answers. And then we're gonna do a little practice and end our time at the station. So what questions do we have? None yet. So far. So it can be anything about this series too, if you want. Yeah. That we've been doing in the month of July. And if you're from Pennsylvania, there's another word Use. Use. Yeah. Right? Ewins. That's it. So how would you say that? Bad. It's just bad English, but... All use? All use. All use bodies. That's it. Pennsylvania has its own way of talking. And you live there for 25 years, you pick up some funny ways of saying things. Any questions? Here's one. That's a good job. It was really clear. Great. John. Hello. Hi. Um, so this, I going down neuroscience rabbit holes lately, and they're understanding more and more that our brains and our bodies don't even develop normally if you don't have a mother that rocks you and touches you, mm -hmm. and and even adults, like we need touch and mm -hmm. affection or we are not okay. Yeah. <laughs> and it just makes me think how science is just catching up to like prove all these messages that I hear and hear of how like, yeah, like we've been taught that so often that bodies and touch are paths of shame and, mm -hmm. and and it's so wrong. And, and then I, we, I come in here and I'm like, oh, and the Bible's telling us this. <laughs> and we're just catching up. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. It's just this, it, I don't know. I feel like the more you seek knowledge, the more it makes, you just find out that everything, they knew it all along. Mm -hmm. um, and it makes me sad and mm -hmm. happy and yeah. Then probably sad again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it makes me sad too because I don't know about all you guys, all y'all, but um, I, I, was, I was never taught to integrate my body into any part of my prayer life, any part of meditation, any part of listening for God. But if you think about it, like I think I said this the first week, like your heart, your, your emotions tell a story of what's what's. They, they point you to what's true, right? And your body also can point you to what's true. You feel what's true about you and what's happening, how you're experiencing the world through your body. Your body and your heart are the two things that really God uses to help us with the discernment 
but we're told not to trust our heart or not to trust our bodies, right? So I think that the reason why I wanted to talk about this so much is that it plays such a huge part in how we show up into the world. And I don't mean how we look or how strong or anything like that, but, but how we use these bodies and, and as we go along, not ignoring them, but stewarding them and listening to them. Part about this is, is understanding it in a community and understanding it, especially in our culture, is to understand how we play a role in a community like this, where we bring what we have to the table and, it, and it's where God dwells in our midst. That was one of the phrases that came out of Ephesians. So it's interesting. It, here's one that's online. Okay. Explain what gift of grace means. And how does this change my week? What does it look like for all y'all to live this out? That's a good question. Go ahead. Go ahead. You, you're the one that used <laughs> gift of grace. I haven't <clears throat> thought of my body as a gift of grace for a long time. <laughs> I mean, isn't that just funny too? Like, I mean, the whole like, we can't like talk about that without getting awkward, you yeah. know, like we side hug, we like don't, like, like what you said is so true. Like we, we, need, we need to like, you know, I mean this in the most sibling-like way. Like we need to not be afraid to like lay hands on each other, to touch each other, to like, and I know like not everybody likes to be touched. I completely get that. But everybody needs touch in some way, shape, or form, whether you're a person who likes physical affection or not. And and I just think that we, as the body of Christ, as brothers and sisters in the Lord, we can do better to love each other in that way. But that's a whole other situation. Gift of grace is, when I think of gifts of grace, I think of um, the, thing that God, the things that God gives us in order to carry out his commands, right? So like when, when Jesus says, this is the greatest commandment, he's actually saying that something is required of us. You know, like, I know, like, we live in a, um, it, it's, like, not cool to, like, the whole battle between faith and works and all that stuff, but, like, you know, we're saved by grace, but, but in that, we've been saved to something, right? When you look at, when you look at the way humans were created, God created humans in our image, and then immediately, he says, so that they can have dominion over the earth so that they can rule and subdue, so that they can live in this garden and plant and nourish and till and, and weed and like do all of the things. And so a gift of grace is what God gives us in order to carry out. Like when we've talked about mental illness, I think I've said before, like, you know, sometimes medication is frowned upon, right? But medication to me is a gift of grace for people who struggle with mental illness. For those of us who have biological things going on that don't allow us to function well in the world, medication can be a gift of grace, as can therapy and, and all of that. The body of Christ is a gift of grace. We are very much, um, we're told, like, you don't need anybody. You need to be okay by yourself. Like, we, we need to be able to be, you know, autonomous and all of that. And, and that's true in the sense of like, that doesn't mean, you, not everybody needs a husband or a wife, right? Not everybody needs a boyfriend or a girlfriend, but we need each other. We need the body to be the body. We can't 
We're not meant to live this life in this world alone. Everything that you read in scripture, everything you read in both testaments speaks to the body, the community of God, followers of Christ. So the gift of grace is the body of Christ. Your personal body is what you bring to that. One body, many members. Does that help? Just add one thing to that. That was great. I would say that uh, we were given bodies to interact with the creation he created. Mm -hmm. And there is um, great pleasure in that. There is uh, excitement in that. It It allows for an expression for what's going on inside with your emotions. We get tears, we get laughter. All of those things are a gift of grace Mm -hmm. because of the full experience of being human is being in a body. Yeah, and what is the first thing we do when we start crying? Apologize. Right. Why? That's so dumb. It's just water. It's just water. It's your body expelling your emotion. It's doing what it's supposed to do. Right. Yeah, but when it's like at a commercial on TV, that's embarrassing. (laughs) You had a question? Here he comes. Um, I'm just glad for the conversation. Um, I'm glad for even the question, um, the body's a temple, heard that, and it immediately puts pressure. Like, I feel like I grew up in churches, or, you know, for a season I was in a lot of different churches for work, and there's some where it's like, you can't drink in the carpet, don't touch the, you know, you can't bring a drink in, and so this temple is like, it needs to be perfect, it needs to be... And, you know, even as a woman, I have spent so much time critiquing and judging and comparing my body. But if it's a gift and it's, um, it's just a different energy, and I think awareness and having this conversation is so important. I was just at a retreat in Joshua Tree, and it was a little woo-woo. But <laughs> one of the experiences we did is we wrote a letter to ourselves from our body. And then we responded to our body. So it was this, you use the word integration. And so this awareness of maybe our body is holding some information that we haven't allowed it the awareness of. And so like having a pen pal and continuing that relationship, like what is my body and just sitting in some stillness, like what holy revelation might this be trying to offer me? Um, and my body told me, sometimes you don't listen to me. And... Um, I have like the code to the adventure you're looking for. So I'm actually trying to help you live this full life that you desire. And by denying me, you're missing pieces of, you know, this. So, and to hear, there were 17 women there to hear the different things their bodies held and told them. So I just appreciate the, the reverence and the, almost the play and the experience do is we think that the body like that like uh, sometimes like so for me if I heard that 10 years ago I would have thought well that's too much you know and like there's a difference between worshiping the body and what it holds and 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 all that it is and can do and then there's making your body an offering of worship and like allowing it to do what it was meant to do to participate in your worship Our goal as Christ followers is to become fully formed in his image. And this is a long play. It takes our whole lives to do this. Some people call it sanctification, 
right? And so it's, it's integrating all of these parts of us to become whole, healthy people who, you, who nurture all four parts of the spiritual anatomy, our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what I hear you saying. It's beautiful. All right. Oh, in the back. Check one. There we go. Um, it makes me think of, uh, I think, Romans, I think the 7, 8, 9 area, like Paul's, or is it 6, 7, 8? Anyhow, Paul's struggle, like, with the flesh, I've always related to that, and, and, and it seems to be a conflicting thing for me. Like, I love this, I, and I agree with it, but I know not long it's going to be like, there's a struggle of the flesh and how do you let the outer man decay instead of trying to perfect the flesh um, as it talks about like there was um, you know he says who will set me free from this body of sin it's like I don't know you could probably explain it better but you Romans know, you know what you're in Romans 7 yeah Romans 7 yeah yeah so how does that relate to this like because I know my mind will definitely start to try and quantify and go, well, what about my sin nature in the flesh that's decaying? And, and, but how do I bring my whole body when sometimes my whole body presents things that are not good? <laughs> you know, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I'm not framing it right, but somewhere yeah. in there. It's a great question. That's a good question. Go ahead. You want me to answer that one? Yes. <laughs> Thanks. I feel like I've been talking a lot. Yeah, it's been great. <laughs> yes. And Yes, we like hearing from you. Romans 7 speaks to this idea of that sin is actually a um, principality that basically sits on the shoulder and, and entices the human part of our um, flesh to do things that are contrary to the gospel, basically. is the And he talks about it as though it is a person. He talks, though, talks through Romans 7. So if you want to read Romans 7, you'll get the, the battle with the principality of sin. And, and as you read through that, you begin to recognize that it's, it's not his, his flesh he's talking about. It is his sin nature that he's talking about that is warring against the Christ in him, that is warring against what God is redeeming in him. And so physically, what Susie's talking about today is this physical thing, um, as opposed to the, the sin nature that resides in each of us as we come to Christ, that battle rages. And if you don't experience that battle, then the question is not whether or not you have a sin nature. The question is whether or not you actually know Jesus. That would be the, the because Jesus comes in and, and stands in contrast to that which would normally take us down paths that lead to destruction, and he leads towards life. And so that's the battle that rages, but they're very attractive. The 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 paths that lead or the behaviors that lead, the beliefs that lead, the, the soul-sucking parts of life that lead to um, what I would call destruction or a life that is given over to things that just don't matter or emptiness or there's any number of ways of describing that is very enticing. Don't know why that is other than that, that we're kind of like easily suckered into it um, as humans because, you know, I, when I talked about it <laughs> last week, I talked about a bag of licorice. It was very enticing to me. Um, not good for me, but very enticing and very empty when it's done. The bag is empty and I'm empty. <laughs> 
but all it, it solves nothing and that is the ever treadmill of the human existence it's not this and what she's trying to describe is how all this is interconnected and how when we lean in with our bodies we bring something because it is the container in which we come it is how we present ourselves it's the it's the mind is played out the soul is played out and our emotions are played out as people can see it in this physical manifestation of kevin dixon Susie lind how's that great is there one more yeah Thank you so much for the uh, discussion, appreciate it. I had a statement and then a question. Uh, the statement was, I just, I really appreciate how you reframed temple um, for, for God, temple of the Holy Spirit, because I think how I interpreted it after you explained it is, it, it's sort of like I just exist as a temple. I, I, now that I've received him and accepted him, it's just de facto, it's, it is, we're, we're working together in tandem, I don't have to do something in order to perfect it. I don't have to do something to make it this body worthy of him to inhabit it. And that's how I always perceived it before. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's just happening, you know? Um, the question is as a parent um, and have, you know, well, I guess first as a kid growing up in sort of that fundamentalist, you know, keep your distance type thing. Um, and now as a parent, how do I best, I guess, communicate that to my kids? Because it still kind of comes out at times and I do my best to lead by example and uh, to show them affection and show them, you know, that touch is okay. Mm -hmm. But sometimes that knee-jerk reaction might be like, I don't know where that line is. How, how do I best guide them um, as, as a parent? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting because this whole conversation <clears throat> brings up two issues for me, and that is, like, um, agency and togetherness right? Um, all y'all and then my own agency as a person. So, you know, I think um, the way I grew up was like my temple needed to be beaten into submission. And whatever was wrong with me, whatever sin I had in me, whether it was addiction or lust or whatever, I had to beat that into submission. But I think the the way that I, again, like I said this last week, this is like how I would want to parent <laughs> versus how I did parent, is, you know, focusing so much more on the goodness of God and all of his creation that is meant to bring glory to him is a lot more compelling and then, um, then focusing on everything that needs to be beaten into submission and the do's and the don'ts and, the, and all of that. So when you have a child and you tell your child that, that when God made humankind, he actually said that he blessed them and said that it was very good. When he made the human body, he said it was very good. And so our bodies are good. They're inherently good. Because we live in a fallen world, there are bad things that happen. So as your child grows, you show them love, you show them affection, and it's what Rebecca said, what they need for their brains to develop is, is affection. But at the same time, you also, as they grow, teach them agency. You know, like, if you don't want weird uncle so-and-so to give you a hug and a kiss at Thanksgiving, you don't have to do that, you know? Like, that's okay to not want that. And then those are the conversations that we have about unwanted touch and things like that, right? So it's, 
to me, it's, a, it's an overall conversation, and I wish that I had taught my children the goodness of how God created them in every way and how those things are all to function together. I do have teenage boys, so there's plenty of opportunity for that now. Oof. Just saying. <laughs> all right. It's never-ending. I know. Okay, I have a you, practice you have for us. You have a little us. practice yes. for us. Okay. Okay. Um, if you would, so, so one of the things that I just want to point out is that, like, it is scriptural for us to, to hear from God through our bodies. Um, I want to read a passage. It's a really short passage. And if you want to close your eyes and let me read it to you so that you can listen to it and feel it and all of that, that's great. But I understand that we also have a diverse way of processing in this room, so it will be on the screen if you need it. But it's a passage from 1 Kings 19, and the background of the passage is that, um, is that uh, uh, the prophet Elijah has just, um, just demolished the prophets of Baal, and he's running from Jezebel. And um, he experiences a lot of emotion and his body plays it out. So I want you to listen for that and listen to how God speaks to him. And then maybe as we go to the stations, think about how God might be speaking to you through your body and what that might mean for you. Now Ahab and Jezebel, Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. So Elijah was afraid. He ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he laid down under the bush, and he fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. So I find it really interesting that when Elijah was so fearful to the point that he wanted to die, so exhausted, that the angel of the Lord didn't come and say, you need to meditate on God's law. He said, you need a nap and some food. Sometimes the most holy thing we can do to worship God is to literally take a nap and eat some food. 
because our body is telling us something with that hunger. It's why we have the word hangry, right? It's like something happens when our bodies have these natural responses to living that then come out in the way that we live these lives. So I love that we close our gatherings with communion, with the Lord's Supper, because the thing that God the incarnate God and Jesus Christ decided to give as a generation upon generation upon generation thing to remember him by are these symbols that represent his body and his blood. And so a lot of, a lot of times we serve communion and we say, this is the body of Christ given for you. This is the blood of Christ poured out for you. It's an offering it's a gift of grace. It's something to help us remember that God's presence is with us, that his bodily presence walked the earth to show us how to love others with our strength, with all of our muchness. It's a reminder that even when we feel like our muchness isn't much, that he's still there and he's with us. So as we close with song and prayer, I encourage you to go and receive the bread and the cup and think about that. And if you have a prayer that you would like us to carry with you, we would love to carry that with you and pray with you. So yeah, it's good to be the body with you.